This morning we're in the last half of Ephesians chapter 4. We'll finish the chapter by reading and diving into verses 11 through 16 together. Young Christians, young theologians, we're going to talk about being a child this morning and being an adult. There's a difference, and I want you to see if you can find what's that difference. What is it to be a child? What is it to be an adult? Here's a hint. It's not how old you are. It has nothing to do with age. But what's the difference between childhood and adulthood? This is the good news of Paul the Apostle given for the church. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, We're to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray. And if there were one thing we could ask of you, Lord Jesus, it would be that you would make us a body able to build itself up in love and not a body of busyness and distraction. But instead, we pray that you would make us a family and a group of people joined together in Christ our head and being raised to full maturity and that we would rejoice in it as we see Christ working among us like this. If you'll do all of these things, and we'll give you thanks for them. We ask it in Jesus the Savior. Amen. Would you be seated? Jesus wants the body built up. That's what the end of verse 12 says. Christ is the head and we are his body, down in verses 15 and 16. And no head ever decides to let the body attached to it fall apart. No head ever decides to let its body disintegrate, or no good head would do that anyway. In fact, in the history of things with bodies, no body decides that it's going to give all of its resources and all of its strength, all of its health to just one part at the expense of all the other parts. Nobody wants a vibrant heart and weak lungs, strong muscles and brittle bones, good circulation, and a nervous system that misfires continually. Which brings us back to the gifts Christ gives out on his victory parade. His chariot rises above all other powers because he has broken the locks of our imprisonment and made us uncaptive as we settled into verse 8 last week in the first part of the chapter. And as victors and conquerors do, Jesus disperses gifts in his ascension, in his rising, in his victory march. The spoils of his victory are for those who are part of him. 
Now, we have a custom called the white elephant gift. In our culture, it's an opportunity to get rid of all the junk in your closet by slapping a bow on it and giving it to some other poor sucker at Christmas time. But historically, a white elephant was given by the kings of Thailand to servants or subjects who had displeased them. And here's the catch. To be given a gift by the king is an honor, so you can't give it away. You can't sell it. Someone who received a white elephant from the king couldn't just turn it loose. And because they were sacred, white elephants are rare. Because they were sacred, you couldn't use them for any manual labor or work. You you couldn't turn a profit with the thing. So, if you received a white elephant... You would have to keep it and feed it at enormous expense. And you'd be able to generate no revenue from owning it. If you received a white elephant, it was a sure decline into financial ruin. It's a gift that's not really a gift. It's a gift that's actually a curse. Believe it or not, and some of us don't believe this at all, and all of us have trouble believing it at some time or other, Jesus does not give white elephants. The head does not give to the body gifts that ruin or frustrate. He gives gifts that build up. And in the construction of the text, Jesus ascends into heaven And he passes out gifts to men and women who join him by faith on his victory march. And then, in verse 11, some of the gifts he gives for building up the body, building up the church, are listed out. In verse 11, it says he gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the pastors and the teachers. Or maybe it's better for us to say that these are all varieties of the same gift beginning with the apostles and then telescoping out from there. The apostles were a group who had seen Jesus and they'd walked with Jesus and they'd learned from Jesus. There weren't very many of them. And the designation apostle actually comes from a word that means to be sent out as a messenger. Jesus sent them into the world to build the church filled with his gospel. We are an apostolic church, a church that comes from the apostles. But there's some confusion about that between different Christian traditions. Catholics and Episcopalian traditions often say that apostolic means we have their authority. What's meant is that priests and clergy are the spiritual descendants of the apostles themselves. They hold an apostle-like authority in office as they do their work in the church. But that doesn't really seem to fit the scope of the passage. Jesus ascended into heaven and he gave gifts to men and women for building up the body, including giving the authority of the apostles over to priests and clergy. Now, that feels like a white elephant. That feels like a gift that's not really a gift. Other traditions, 
Charismatic traditions, Pentecostal traditions often say that apostolic means we do what they did. The very same things the apostles did, that's what we do now. We have spectacular gifts and miracles and signs and wonders at our disposal. Still seems like something of a stretch. Jesus ascended into heaven and gave gifts to men and women for the building up of the body. And he gave the apostles who would give to us signs and wonders to do on our own. That doesn't really seem like it would build the body up. There's not enough there. In our tradition, we've read what it means to be apostolic very differently. The Reformed and Presbyterian churches have have always understood apostolic to mean we teach what they taught. What the apostles taught, that's what shapes us. Now that one seems to fit. Jesus gave apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers who kept handing his teachings down all the way down until they came to us. They've given to us what they received from Jesus so that we could have what's listed in verse 13. There's a whole list of things in verse 13. Unity of the faith. We depend on the very particular ministry of Jesus together. Who Jesus is and what he does. We need that together. And the knowledge of the Son of God. We know the same revelations of Jesus together. That's what we believe. And the full measure of the stature of Christ. We are living on the strength of Christ together. Not our own strength anymore. But his strength. Ah, that one fits, I think. The apostles' teachings of Christ are what build up the body of Christ. The body growing up into the head. And actually, that interpretation seems to fit with other passages not written by Paul, which makes the interpretation even stronger. Jesus, after his resurrection, brings his disciples up to a mountainside. And there he sends them out into the world. And this is where they become apostles. Go and make disciples in all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. There it is again, the apostles' teaching. And the church, pictured at the end of Acts chapter 2, is characterized as a group of people who gather together to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, the text says. But look, Paul doesn't really care that you know what apostolic is. I thought you should know. But he's not really writing that into the passage. Knowing the definition won't necessarily build you up. It's just abstract enough that you could write it off. Or you could hold to it tenaciously and still not be changed. So Paul draws his bow and puts ink on his arrow and aims for our hearts. And in the middle of verse 13 he says... Jesus gives gifts that make us mature together. That's how the body is built up. Jesus wants you grown up, and it spills over into verse 14. He wants you to outgrow childhood. And the way the verse says it, there's no question as to what childhood is. We have home video footage of a vacation at the beach. 
And I'm standing in the surf, holding a daughter by each hand. And when the breakers roll, I let them slam into me, and I lift each child over the crest of the oncoming wave. And for a few minutes, for a few minutes, it's all salt and the weight of crashing water and giggles. But the film footage clearly shows that as one wave came in and crashed into me, and as I lifted a child up over its crest, I lost her and came up empty-handed. And she disappeared under the foam and was gone until I could find her and drag her up again, choking and sputtering and blinking salt out of her eyes. And the same picture of childhood is given here. Children, you know what children are? Children are the ones who are tossed around, bobbing like corks, washed out and thrown head over heels in a breathless pile onto the shore and then dragged back out to the deeps and put through the violent spin cycle all over again. They're the ones who are blown around by every wind of doctrine. Everything that comes down the pike, they latch onto it. They're sold on it. They're pushed and bullied by the winds that blow up out of nowhere. Who can say where they originate? But it's hard to argue with the push of the wind when it knocks you off your feet and flattens the upright world. Children are fooled by cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes, the verse says. On the other hand, maturity is knowing who you are knowing where you came from, and knowing what makes you who you are. In our case, it's being attached to Christ the head. In our case, it's holding to everything that the apostles have taught us about Jesus. Maturity is hearing the Savior's voice. Maturity is hearing the strongest voice over seductive voices, siren voices that call for us to crash on the rocks. Maturity is refusing to be sweet-talked out of who you are. Childish means to be gullible, easily had, turned in circles. But maturity is learning to say yes to the right things and no to the wrong ones. It's learning the holiness of yes and no. doesn't mean that it's always going to be easy. And children... Continue to turn that upside down. Yeses and noes in all the wrong places. Maturity is an ability to reject error and hold tightly to what's right and good because that's what Christ the head has given to us. That's what he's handed down to us. And just so we're clear, one more piece. Maturity doesn't mean that you learn how to live your life outside of the crashing waters, safe and dry, standing on the shore. Maturity is actually standing in the pounding surf, unmoved. According to the text, maturity looks like two qualities that we can rarely put together. We just don't have the ability. But these are two qualities and traits that Jesus always puts together. Truth in love. The gospel of maturity is not truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. 
Christ's gift to people was not Joe Friday. Just the facts. That's all we're interested. Just the facts. That's all we need. This is what reformed people tend to love. Keep it in the realm of doctrine. But let's not get messy and talk about life and doctrine. In the same way, the gospel of maturity is not love, love, love. All you need is love. Christ's gift to humanity was not the gospel of John Lennon. The gospel is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, wrapped up in the love that will not let me go. Wrapped up in the love of Christ, proven and given again and again and again. In my neighborhood this week, I overheard children playing truth or dare. And thankfully, they don't really know how to play it yet. Play it without stakes. And there's no danger attached to it. Truth or dare is a game no one wins. You can only lose if you play truth or dare because it's a game of guilt. When a player is asked to choose truth or dare and that player chooses truth, a question is asked and the question is designed to drag up some hidden guilt. And if the player chooses dare, the player is asked to do something that adds to his or her pile of guilt. So what happens when heaven and earth play truth or dare? What happens when God and humanity play? We go first... And full of ourselves, we pick dare. Dare us to do something, God. And he says, no. No dares for you. You're not up for it. Let's just stick with truth. And here's the question. Do you love me? Do you love me because you believe that I love you beyond your concept of love? And we can't even answer the question. We look down at our feet and our faces flush and our eyes well up and suddenly everything in our hearts rises to the surface. What's buried there, what's lurking, what's hidden there. The wild, savage things we think we can tame and teach to heal, but in truth they drag us around and devour us. The weight of wrongs too heavy to carry and too heavy to throw off and be done with. So heavy someone has to lift them from us. All the things we can't fix or clean up. For our turn, heaven insists on truth for us. And heaven says, do you believe God is good and gracious and loving? And can you stake your life, all of your life, not part of it, but all of your life on his love? And then it's heaven's turn. And from earth we yell up, truth or dare? And heaven answers back, both. Fine, we'll start with truth again. And not very creative, we end up with the same question that was put to us. We just say it differently. Do you love sinners? 
And the answer back is, with everything I have and with all that I am. And we answer, you can't. Not possible. Then move to dare and let's find out. Fine. We dare you to prove it. We dare you to quit hiding behind words and love us in person. So Jesus the Son is born. Jesus comes in our fallen flesh without falling in it. And he wears our flesh to fill it up with love and worship and ministry. And he does not fill up his flesh with theft the way we fill up ours. We dare you to love us in our shame, our outcastness. Can you love us in the worst of what we are in our hearts and our bodies? And he sets up a cross, measured and designed and built for all the sins that feel like they will kill you. And instead of pushing you away for those sins, he embraces shamed, shameful you through crossbeams with spikes. We dare you to love us without stopping. We dare you to love us without limit. We dare you to love us even though we're dead to love. And with you in his heart, he climbs into your tomb. And with you in his heart, he stays all the way under your death. Three days fully dead. And with you in his heart, he broke death's jailer grip. Not enough. We need more. We dare you for more. And he pours his spirit into you. He gives you a new heart and a new mind to replace the twisted granite of the old ones. And you know what that feels like? You know what it is to have his spirit poured into you? To have a new heart and a new mind? Has he ever stopped you from you? That's what it is. Has he ever stopped you from you? Truth or dare, we ask. And heaven answers both. Jesus wins the game that no one wins because he has no guilt. He can't lose the game. He holds truth and love together in everything he says and everything he does. And if that's the maturity of the head, then that's the maturity he has for us. Our problem is we do our very best to keep them separate. It's easier to compartmentalize those two traits, those two qualities, but it makes each of them harder to take. It's immaturity if you separate them. It's incomplete if you pull them apart. It feels like we're half-developed, half-built people when we do it that way. So truth alone is truth like billy clubs and riot police. Love on its own is like flowery sonnets and folk singers. Bare-knuckled truth or kid-gloved love. And that's why we're children tumbled by waves and thrown about by winds. But to grow up, according to Paul, we don't get to choose between those two. To grow up, according to Paul, we do what's unnatural to us. 
We do what we can't do without Christ. We do what Christ will only do. We speak the truth in love. That's the practice of the mature that brings maturity. And for Paul, I'm not sure that you caught it, but for Paul, it isn't passive. Something that comes along, like waiting for a bus that just pulls up in front of your stop. For Paul, it's active. And the church in every age would agree with him. People don't just become mature. In the gospel, we step out of childhood and into maturity. Not by hearing the truth in love. Not by listening out for it. I think that's the way the verse is too often taken. Paul puts a different verb to work here. By speaking the truth in love. We believe about Jesus, what he gives us to believe about himself. When we speak what he spoke. And when we speak it the way he spoke it. Easter's barreling down on us from four weeks away. And again, we can get ready. We can grow in our practice of the resurrection. We can actually practice rising out of childhood and into adulthood. Because the language of Easter is truth in love. You have countless opportunities to practice. So what would Jesus, the head, want the body being built up, grown up into maturity to say to someone who is discouraged in losing heart, to someone who is frightened as a rabbit, to someone who's self-impressed or self-loathing? Speak the truth in love. What would Jesus, the head, want the body being built up to say to someone tempted and teetering on the edge, about to go over? To someone who has fallen into a pit of sin again. Or blinded by pride and arrogance. Or deaf to their own lies. Speak the truth in love. What would Jesus the head want the body being built up, grown up into maturity. To say to someone willful and stubborn and defiant. Someone who is joyless. Someone who is frivolous. Someone who can't come out from under their guilt and shame, someone who wants to recklessly add to their guilt and shame. You know the language. He spoke it to you. Speak the truth in love. What does the church in Jesus the head being built up say to someone who doesn't know what to believe, struggles to believe, will believe just about anything, but rarely the gospel of Jesus? Speak the truth in love. It's the language of the mature. It's the only language Jesus spoke. It's the language Jesus wants you to to learn because it's the language of being made guiltless in Jesus. You don't hand your Academy Award to a baby. But one producer of this year's Best Picture winner, The King's Speech, handed his Oscar over to his 15-month-old daughter so she could have her picture taken with it. And she did what any toddler would do. She held it for a minute, and then she let it go. And it fell to the stone patio deck below and dented, and the chest plate broke. 
But in the case of the gospel, a child can't dent or break it. It works the other way. A child handling the truth in love becomes full grown. And a child speaking the truth in love builds up the other children around. Easter's coming. Time to grow up. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Oh Lord Jesus Christ, these are the things that we ask of you, that you'll teach us to speak your language, truth and love. It's the only way you have given yourself to us And it's the only way we can grow up into maturity, into unity of the faith, into knowledge of the Son, into the full stature of Jesus Christ in all of His strength, speaking what you spoke in the way you spoke it. That's what you have for us. So give to us now that maturity. And for it, we will give you thanks in the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Amen.